Today we begin our journey in the book of Esther. This is going to be part one of however long it takes to finish the book of Esther. I really never know. So um, I think perhaps the most unique thing about Esther that I want to address in my introductory remarks is the fact that God is not mentioned at all in the story. Like, he's not even referred to in this story. Not even one time in the entire narrative. And it seems to be that one of the purposes of this book is to explain the origin of the Feast of Purim. It was celebrated February, March in our calendar. But it was a non-Mosaic feast. One that's not mentioned in the Torah, in the Pentateuch. A celebratory festival commemorating the deliverance of the Jews from annihilation. But beyond that, The purpose of the book of Esther is to demonstrate God's providential care of his people. That's the purpose. There was one thing you want to remember about the book of Esther, it's that. It is to demonstrate God's providential care of his people, especially those who live outside the land of Israel. And so, when we examine Esther a little further, we try to understand who's writing this book. And big question mark there. We really, we don't know who. The early church father, Augustine, believed Ezra was the author. The Talmud, which is the the Jewish commentary on the Old Testament, it it said that the great men of the synagogue were its authors. Clement of Alexandria, the early church father, he had a theory that Mordecai was actually the one writing this. And, And he wasn't alone in his view that Mordecai was writing this. Accompany Clement of Alexandria on this view were many of the ancient Jewish and Christian scholars. But all I have to say, we just, we don't know. And because we don't know who wrote this book, it becomes very difficult to date the book for when the book was actually written. I would put at the, at the very latest date of 350 B.C. And the reason is, is because anything beyond 350 B.C., we would expect to see more of a, a Greek influence Um, With the expansion of the Greek Empire under Alexander the Great, we just don't see that here. So it's a very, very Persian story. So no later than 350 B.C. But the challenges of the book of Esther go beyond just trying to figure out who the author is, when to date it. In fact, it was, and still is at times, this book is disputed. It's disputed in the fact is, should it even be in our Bible? It's one of those books that has some significant textual challenges. Is this book even legit? Can we trust this book? Many people throughout history have rejected this book. In fact, Martin Luther, the great reformer, he was so hostile to this book that he said he wished it did not exist. That, coupled with the fact that Esther was the only Old Testament book not found at Qumran, Uh, You may remember the the greatest, perhaps, archaeological discovery in the last hundred years was at the 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 Dead Sea Scrolls, discovered in the Qumran Caves. The only book from the Old Testament not found there in the Qumran Caves or the Dead Sea Scrolls was the book of Esther. For these reasons, as well as other theological, historical, and textual reasons, uh, there is some skepticism. The king of Persia in the book of Esther, he's mentioned 190 times, and yet God isn't mentioned at all. There's no reference made to the law, no reference made to covenant, no reference made to prayer or angels. 
In fact, kindness, mercy, and forgiveness are also all missing from this book. No doubt for some of these reasons, Athanasius, who is one of my favorite church fathers, he did not include Esther in the canon, though he did think it was edifying, along with other books such as Judith and Tobit. But as many critics as there were when it comes to the legitimacy of the book of Esther, there were also many proponents. Clement of Alexandria, Origen, all thought this book was legit and deserved to be part of Scripture. And the divide over the book of Esther tends to be kind of an east and west divide, where in the west it was usually accepted, in the east it wasn't so much. But then finally at 397 B.C. at the Council of Carthage, it was the consensus there that this book would be a part of the Scripture. And I think rightly so, no doubt, because of its firm position within the Jewish canon. The consensus of Christian believers since the early church and ultimately indicated that it should be part of Scripture. But all that to say, you can see that some people might have their doubts. And the book of Esther is not the only book in the Bible that people have their doubts. I think of one of the famous gospel stories from John chapter 8. Jesus addresses the woman caught in adultery. What does he say? Draws his finger, line in the sand, let him who is without sin be the first to cast a stone. If you look up that, that passage in John chapter 8, regardless of what translation you have, you'll probably have a, a little footnote saying in the oldest manuscripts this story is not found. Which most likely that story was a later addition and may have actually never even happened. And that's one of many. So you can see there, whether it's the book of Esther whether it's a story in John chapter 8, there are challenges. And I'd rather you hear it from me than maybe be caught off guard by someone and then you feel like your faith has been shaken because you're hearing this for the very first time. I think back to a conversation I had in North Carolina um, this summer. I was away for five weeks with the Army. If you don't know, I'm an Army Reserve chaplain. So I was away for five weeks and I had a conversation with a young lieutenant and he, uh, he shared with me, actually, uh, that his wife was the daughter of a, a Lutheran pastor. And then he went on to tell me that neither he nor his wife were actually Christians. And I said, well, what's, what's your holdup for, for not being a Christian? If you could boil it down to one thing. And he said, the Bible. Don't trust it. It's been changed so many times. It was, you know, written and rewritten. And I just, I don't trust it. It's been changed so many times. It just is credible, right? And after all, we've got 66 books here, 39 in the old, 27 in the new. And, as he pointed out, we don't have one single original letter. Maybe some of you, I don't know, you've heard that before. Every single thing in this book, all 66, we don't have any of the originals. There's no original letter that the Apostle Paul wrote. There's no original book of Genesis or Exodus. Have zero originals. Zero for 66. So that's what he pointed out to me. All we have of this book are copies. He said, that's why. That's why, that'd probably be my biggest holdup for why I'm not a Christian. Can't trust it. It's been changed too many times. It's not legit. I said, have you ever heard of Julius Caesar? 
Yeah, I've heard Julius Caesar, you know, Cleopatra, Mark Antony. Um, I said Julius Caesar wrote uh, the Gallic Wars, 58, 50 BC. Do you know that there's, uh, of, of his Gallic Wars that he wrote, there's no, no original? There are ten copies of his Gallic Wars. The earliest copy dates a, a thousand years after he wrote the Gallic Wars. Has you ever heard Tacitus, the Roman historian? He wrote the Annals of Imperial Rome in 116 AD. No, no originals of that exist. Just one copy. Written in 8850, about 700 years after Tacitus would have written the original. So have you ever heard of Josephus, the Jewish historian? He wrote the Jewish Wars. No original. Nine copies exist today. The earliest one from the 10th century. 900 years after he would have written the original. Perhaps the history of Thucydides, which recounts the Peloponnesian War between Sparta and Athens. He wrote it between 460 and 400 B.C. No original. Eight copies do exist. The earliest copy, some 1,300 years after Thucydides would have written this. Perhaps Aristotle. He wrote his Poetics in 343 B.C. Forty-nine copies exist. The earliest one dating to 1100 A.D., some 1400 years after Aristotle wrote his Poetics. And then Homer, he wrote the Iliad. Anybody read the Iliad in here? Okay, great. The Iliad is considered, I would say, the gold standard because I think Aristotle's Poetics, there was 49 copies. Uh, Homer's The Iliad has 643 copies. It is considered when it comes to ancient literature, the gold standard, just because of how many copies there are. Now, you say, well, what good is that? Well, there's a lot of good in that. As I was having this conversation with this lieutenant, I'm going over all the things I'm going over with you, and one of the things he wanted to point out is, you know, things can be changed over time. It's not a false statement. We play the game telephone in here, okay, and I take maybe just even two or three sentences, okay? We're going to lose 50% of that meaning within five minutes. It's just going to happen. Okay? But the thing is, is the more copies you have, the more data you have, the more that you can compare it against. If you only have two copies, okay, maybe they both line up. So I said, Homer's the Iliad. 500, excuse me, 643 copies exist. I said, it is the gold standard. There is no other ancient piece of literature that can top that in its manuscript authority except one. You guys know where I'm going here. I said, and that's the Bible. It's the Bible. I said there are 5,600 copies, 20,000 copies of the New Testament. And I I asked him, I said, now you would think with 5,600 copies of the Bible, 20,000 of just the New Testament text, uh, how, what sort of accuracy do you think when you line all those texts up, there's going to be? He's like less than 10%. I said, would it surprise you if I told you that it was somewhere between 97 and 99%? He's like, yeah, it would. And I said, if we took the more conservative number, we took the 97%. The 3%, okay, the 3% that of inaccuracies, 75% of that 3% can be attributed to nothing more than spelling errors. Furthermore, this whole idea, right, that it was written so far after the fact, we've got Aristotle's Poetics. He wrote them in 343 B.C. The earliest copies are found 1,400 years after he lived. I said some of the earliest fragments of Scripture can be dated within the time of the actual New Testament authors to the 1st and 2nd century. Therefore, your argument to say that Scripture can't be trusted, it's not reliable, 
is simply untrue. If you want to discredit Scripture, then by that same logic you must discredit every other piece of ancient literature that I've mentioned, as well as that that I haven't mentioned. And he said, no one's ever told me that before. But that's... Those are the talking points. Perhaps you've had conversations with friends. Oh, I can't trust Scripture. It's been changed so many times. Um, There are challenges to this text. Challenges to Esther. Challenges to other stories that may have been later additions. But overwhelmingly, this book is really legit and trustworthy. Okay? And I told them, like, if you're looking for a reason not to be a Christian, saying that this book isn't legit, that's probably not your best reason. You probably you need to think of a different reason. At the heart of the story of Esther is a story of faithfulness, a story of courage, and a story of irony. Let's begin. Esther, chapter 1, verse 1. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, Over 127 provinces in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. So here is the setting. Got King Ahasuerus. I remember, I don't know if any of you guys had a little illustrated children's Bible. It was always like, you had like the king... Vashti. They didn't even bother trying to pronounce his name. Ahasuerus, he's the king. Um, any of you guys seen the movie or you've read a book about the 300 Spartans who held, who held off the million-man Greek army at the pass at Thermopylae? The movie's the 300. Not the greatest movie. Cool special effects. That's about it. Familiar with that story? Okay. Um, Sparta was under attack. The, the Greek city-states were under attack. They were fighting Persia. And you remember the, the king of Persia... Anybody know his name? Xerxes. Same guy. Ahasuerus is Xerxes. Xerxes is his Persian name. And so while I said it's very difficult to date when this book was written, it's not difficult at all to date when this story is taking place. In the third year of his reign, the third year of his reign. This is when the story is taking place. It would have put this story at 483, 483 B.C. But Ahasuerus is the king of Persia. Much of Israel is living away from their homeland. And they have been since 586 B.C. when Nebuchadnezzar came in, the Babylonians conquered Judah, and the Babylonians were eventually displaced by the Medes and the Persians. So after Nebuchadnezzar, you'd have Cyrus and Cambius. You'd have Darius, the story of Daniel in the lion's den. Then his son, Xerxes. His son, Ahasuerus. Not his eldest son, but the son that ultimately would inherit this massive kingdom. Xerxes reigned from 485 to 465 and he inherited what was probably, the, it was the largest empire known at that time. In fact, I think we have a, a shot of it right here. Everything highlighted in that off green is the empire. It extended from India to Ethiopia. It wouldn't have been modern day India. This would have extended beyond that into Pakistan. It would have extended south of Egypt into the Sudan. It was the largest empire ever at that time in history. 
And Ahasuerus has inherited it all. Didn't really have to work for it. He's not a self-made guy. It just is dropped right there for him. And this all takes place in his third year. This would have been three years before his famous expedition against the Greek city-states. In fact, the Greek historian Herodotus described Xerxes and his actual bodyguard. He was said to have had 2,000 horsemen, 2,000 lancers, and 10,000 infantry. He had a 14,000-man personal security detail. Okay? Um, Xerxes doesn't do anything on the small side. Everything is larger than life for this Persian king. And this is very much on display as we continue into verse 4. He showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and the pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. I think at the heart of the story, there is one word, I think, that, that stands out, and it is the word pride. Xerxes is the cat's meow for all intents and purposes. He is. He's got it going on. He's throwing this lavish party. In fact, um, Herodotus, the historian, from the Greek historian, characterized many of these banquets that as many as 15,000 guests could potentially show up. But there is the difference, right? Because he's showing off all this wealth, all, all that is Persia. And I think where the line is, is it's one thing to have it going on. Maybe you are gifted. Maybe you are talented. Maybe you are in a different socioeconomic class. And then you cross that line when you just have to have other people know it. Right? That's the opposite of humility, right? I have to showcase my wealth, so I've got to get this type of car. Or I have to showcase my house, so I have to get this type of house. Or I have to showcase whatever it is. Because it's not enough. It's not enough that I have this gift, because it's a gift. Everything that we have is a gift. The air you breathe in the next second is a gift. But I want everybody to know it. That's Xerxes. That is Ahasuerus. He wants everyone to know it. Verse 5, And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court, the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement, porphyry, marble, the mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. The Greek historian Herodotus takes us a step further into the world of this king who is mentioned over 190 times in this story. And uh, he relates one such incident during Persia's campaign against the Greek city-states in, in which Xerxes retreated from Greece and, and the king left behind his tent abandoned one of the camps. And the Greeks were astounded to find gold and silver couches in the tent. And they asked one another, 
why the rich Persian king would want to conquer their Greek poverty. You see, the world in which we live in today is one that isn't a whole lot different than that at the time of Ahasuerus, of Xerxes in Persia. The world we live in today prizes power and material wealth. You know, picking up from last week's sermon in Luke chapter 12, the entire world is chasing after these things. Xerxes is chasing after these things. And what? Your father knows that you need these things. Maybe not the gold and the silver, but God knows that you need food. God knows, knows that you need money to, to pay your bills. And, and that's the, the big difference here. A lot, there isn't a whole lot when it comes to motivation for material wealth that has changed. This is at the, the center of this story. The world is chasing after these things. They're in love with these things. And oftentimes Christians forget that we are elect exiles. We live with a foot in this world and a foot in the world to come. We forget that. We forget that as Christians we are dual citizens. We're just passing through here. We're just passing through. This isn't our home. But we love the comforts of Persia. We love these things. The world hasn't changed a whole lot. But as Christians, we, we value different things. Jesus talked about this in Luke chapter 12 as we looked at last week. He says there's two types of treasure. There's an earthly treasure, and the earthly treasure is characterized by the fact that it's temporary, right? And that's why he says, don't store up yourself treasure where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. It's not a good investment. And I love good investments. That's just not one of them. There's, there's another type, right, of treasure. One that is stored up in the heavens. It's like, that's the one you should be focused on. That's the one you should be thinking of. You should have that eternal perspective. But it's so hard because the world is sucking us in. The world is saying, chase after these things. All you have to do is walk through any store or turn on your television, a commercial, and there it is. Whatever that thing is, and I want it. I love it. I've got to have it. What does Jesus say at the end of Luke chapter 12, our sermon for last week? He says, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And that's an important contrast and comparison. For where your heart is, there will your treasure be also. Because if you forget this, if you forget this, Christian, you very well may not actually know him in a saving way. That's entirely possible. For I, I don't know of any Christian who says, I'm a Christian, but I love something or someone more than Christ. I don't know of any Christian, and I mean a real biblical Christian, right? Not just someone that says they're a Christian, because we know there's a lot of people like that. Titus 1.16 says they profess to know God, but they deny God by their very actions. We know there's a lot of people like that. But there is no such thing as a Christian who says, I'm a Christian, but I love something. I treasure someone more than Christ. That person doesn't exist biblically. They don't. And I could, I, I could tell you that they do, right? 
so that I don't hurt anyone's feelings or make anyone feel uncomfortable. But I'm going to be held responsible for every single thing that I say to the king of the universe. And unfortunately, I care a lot more about what he thinks than what you think. That's the truth. That person doesn't exist. The one who says, I'm a Christian, but I love or treasure something or someone more than Christ. Not wrong, as we said last week. We see this material wealth on display that the, that the Xerxes, that Ahasuerus values. Not wrong if you are given such a gift by God. Just hold on to that gift with open hands, right? To continue last week's sermon, right? Hold on to it with open hands. Or rather, live with it in such a way that it's clear to the world that it's not your treasure. Christ is. So if God gives you a relationship, romantic, platonic, if God gives you a house, if God gives you a car, whatever He gives you, He gives you money, you live with it in such a way so that it may be clear to the world it's not your treasure. That relationship's not your treasure. That money's not your treasure. Christ is your treasure. Above all things, He's your treasure. Because the difference is that while the world isn't a whole lot different in the time of Xerxes here and what they value and what they love, as Christians, we are and we have been throughout the centuries. But we forget sometimes. We forget this is not our home. Persia's not our home. Virginia's not our home. The United States is not your home. I don't care how much you love your country, how patriotic you are, it's not your home, Christian. And that is a difficult thing for many who profess to know God. But as Christians, there is a huge contrast at this point in this story, we value things differently. Verse 8. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion, for the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. So not only through the first eight verses do we just see this very luxurious setting, but we also see one that's given to Licinius' character at the banquet. Essentially, verse 8 is a free pass to get as trash as you want to get. That's what it's saying. And that's the setting. And then we have a new character come in. Verse 9. Vashti shows up. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. Party's going on. Queen Vashti's got her own little party. She's got her own party for the women. Now, before I comment on that, I'll point out another challenge to you. The Greek, histor the Greek historian Herodotus he would tell you that Xerxes' queen, her name is not Vashti. That's not her name. And so at that point, many see this as another indication that, well, this story can't trust it. Greek historian says Xerxes has a queen, Vashti's not her name, therefore this story is fictitious, this story is not historical, this story is made up. I could tell you, I, I want to bring this to your attention, okay? I'm not trying to only give you one side of things. There are textual challenges at points. However, I think this can be easily remedied, this very fact, in the fact that the king quite possibly could have had other queens or perhaps even different names. Um, some of you guys know my wife, Diana. If you've been around, you've probably heard me refer to her as Fasolimika. 
or Navasta, or Sotia, some type of little Romanian term of endearment that I may have given to her, because she's Romanian. Um, you wouldn't say, well, pff, Diana's not his wife. His wife is Navasta. Now, you wouldn't say that, right? Any sane person wouldn't say that. And so Vashti, her name actually means sweetheart. It's very plausible this is just a term of endearment for those who want to dismiss the story here at this point in verse 9. But what we see here is that Vashti had some degree of power. She had the liberty to make decisions and take actions. But you need to understand that Persian custom did not require that the men and women eat separately. She's eating separately. She has a separate banquet. They're eating separately. Persians didn't typically do this. According to Herodotus, the Greek historian, Persians usually had their wives with them at the feast. And I think the point of verse 9 is a foreshadowing. It's a foreshadowing of the separation soon to come between Ahasuerus and between Vashti. The fact that they're throwing their own separate parties at the same time is very telling. Things are not, things are not okay at home with mom and dad, essentially. Things are really rocky right now for Ahasuerus and for Vashti. I think the very fact that this is happening. Verse 10. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mahuman, Biztha, Arbana, Bigtha, and Abtha, Zether, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown, in order to show the people's and the princess, her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. Right? She had it going on. No doubt about that. Verse 12. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command. Delivered by the eunuchs, at this the king became enraged. And his anger burned within him. He looks like a fool. She's defied him openly. Perhaps in front of 15,000 guests. Why? I remember when I was a little boy reading this story and my, my mom reading this story to me in my little children's illustrated Bible for kids. It seemed, because the narrator never comments on this, why she didn't show up, why she defied the king. It seemed like, well, she's just being a little brat, right? That's what I always thought. That's just, it kind of came across that way. She's being a brat. None of you ladies... Whatever do that, be a brat. I under, I, I, you guys are all terrific. And so that's what I always thought. That's what I always thought. But I started thinking, why? Because we know, especially if you've read the book of Esther, you know that it is very dangerous to show up to see the king, especially if he hasn't called on you. If you show up to see the king and he is not ready to receive you, you put your life on the line. So I think backwards from that. If that is true, then what does that say about if the king does call on you and you don't show up or even defy him in front of thousands of people? She's got to know that. So is she really being nothing more than a little brat here? Why doesn't she show up? That was the question nagging me this entire week. Little brats act bratty, but not when there's so much on the line. 
upon studying this passage further, I think one of the most probable and plausible scenarios to give a reason, and this is speculating a little bit, but I think it makes a whole lot more sense than my little brat theory. Rab, the rab, many, many Jewish rabbis as well as modern commentators have discussed this, and one of the possible implications here is that when he calls to see her, verse 11, throw verse 11 up on the screen, please, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown is another way of seeing, I want Vashti to show up wearing nothing but her royal crown. I want everybody to see how smoking hot my wife is. And all I want her to wear is a crown. That makes a lot more sense why she would take such risk and defy the king so openly. Um, no doubt she knows, if that is the case, what she is getting herself into. She knows how disgraceful that would be, but here's all these men who are going to be gawking at her in the nude as they are vastly and greatly inebriated and sloshed out of their minds. And if that's the case, which I really think it, it makes a whole lot more sense than any other argument, then we have to do something that I never thought about as a small child reading this story, and that is acknowledge that there was a great deal of courage that it took for Vashti to openly defy Ahasuerus, Xerxes, the king. She was brave. And more than that, she was willing to give up her status and position in order to do what was right. Her, her, her dignity was more important than her place in society. She had more self-respect, too much self-respect, to say, yeah, I don't care. I don't care how it moves me in my social standing. I'm not showing up to that. Really amazing. Courageous, you might say. But no doubt the ultimate question is that of authority. What or who really controls what happens in this world? Of course, if you ask Ahasuerus, if you ask Xerxes, he says, I do. I control everything. But it begs the question, who is the ultimate authority? Who controls what happens in the world? Because for that answer creates another question. Who should be obeyed? When and at what cost? You run a, a cake shop? You make cakes? People say, I want a cake made a certain way. And you say, I can't do that. I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't do what you, you're asking me to do. Or they, they say, I want you to use different personal pronouns. I can't do that. <sighs> like, I'm sorry. Like, I don't, I don't mean any disrespect. I know it probably doesn't change your, your mindset. It probably still is going to seem disrespectful, but I, I can't do that. Because for me to use a different personal pronoun to describe you, uh, according to my, my biblical beliefs, would be a lie to God's intended creation. Yeah, those moments take a lot of courage, too, I suppose. Well, Ahasuerus looks like a fool. It's his own fault. He's in a little bit of a jam. Verse 13. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, 
for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment. The next, the men next to him being Karshina, Shether, Admatha, Tarshish, Marys, Marcina, and Mimucan, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. He is powerful, but it was still customary for him to consult with his advisors. Verse 15, according to the law, what do we do? She's openly defied me. What do we do? We've got to do something. And I don't, I think he's right. You have to do something here. Um, what is to be done with Queen Vashti? Because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs. Then Mimucan said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt. Since they will say, well, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she had not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials and there will be contempt and wrath and plenty. So if it please the king, let a royal order go out from him and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be repealed that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princess, and the king did as Mimucan proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household, and speak according to the language of his people. He has to do something. So the advice given, we're going to fire Vashti. We're going to remove her from office. We'll send her to exile. She can stay in Persia, but her duties as queen are over. Her duties of queen are over. And the story ends with a vacancy. How interesting. There's a vacancy. And that vacancy is going to need to be filled. And who will now have the opportunity to fill it? Ahasuerus. Xerxes. He will have the opportunity to fill it. He will have the opportunity to choose who is going to take Vashti's place. Man, if you know the story, man, very, very lucky how things are about to unfold. Of course it's not lucky. God's not mentioned at all in chapter 1. But he is very much active in chapter 1. It just so happens there's a vacancy, and now Xerxes is going to fill it. Oh, Xerxes is going to fill it, but God's sovereign choice is going to supersede the choice of that of Xerxes. You're like, okay, so I'm, I'm confused. Is Ahasuerus going to fill the vacancy or is God going to fill the vacancy? Yes. 
Ahasuerus, Xerxes, he's going to fill the vacancy. That's true. But it is God superseding. It is God's sovereign choice. It's not a matter that God just lucks out and Ahasuerus just happens to pick this little gal who has some Jewish roots. Right? It's not just, just wow, that's, that's really good fortune, man. God is like the luckiest person ever. No, God is sovereignly involved in this. Ahasuerus will make that decision, as we'll see in the next chapter, but it is God's sovereign choice superseding that of the choice of the king. Remember, I I asked a question earlier, and it is the question of authority. What or who really controls what happens in the world? Do you see it? What or who really controls what happens? You say, all right, it's clear, it's God. Yeah, we forget that, right? Depending on who's in the White House, who controls the Senate, who controls the Congress, right? Uh, That political party is in charge, that political party is in charge. Oh, Christians, don't forget you are elect exiles. You do not. This is not your home. You are but passing through. God is on his throne. God is calling the shots. God is in charge in this story, even though he's not even mentioned. But what do we see? We see Ahasuerus, who is just like pretty much every other worldly leader. He's pretty much like most people. He values wealth and material possessions. And he wants you to know about it. Not enough that he has it. He wants you to know how awesome he is. And we see his pride contrasted with that of the courage of Vashti. Takes a lot of courage. She evidently has a lot of self-respect. More self-respect for herself than to show up the way and the timing that he wants her to show up. But I think we need to press beyond that. Because if that's the simple takeaway from the sermon, you just say, well, what do you learn? You need to have courage. You need to have self-respect. Like Vashti. That's a message for any, like, secular talk. It really is. Just love myself more Just think more positive thoughts, right? I am a victor, not a victim. I'm going to go out and live my best life now. Which, coincidentally, is only possible if you're going to hell. Only way you live your best life now is if you're going to hell. No, 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 no. Why? Why? There's definitely something to be taken and noted in the life of Queen Vashti and how she handles this situation. She makes her decision, no doubt, because she has so much self-respect for herself that she would no way do this. doesn't matter what it costs her. That is a courageous thing. But as a Christian, why would we do something, right? Why would we make a choice not to do something? To not bake the cake or not to use the personal pronoun? Is it simply a matter of self-respect? It has to be more than just self-respect. It needs to be understood in who we are. The Imago Dei. 
You know that you were made in the image of God. Whether or not you are a Christian in here or listening online, you are made in the image of God. And as an image bearer of God, you have a responsibility to represent Him. To misrepresent Him is sin. That's why. I don't go to this party, put myself in this position I shouldn't be in. It has to be more than just a matter of self-respect. It has to be. Why? Why would I not be pressured into going this far with a guy or this far with a girl that I'm not married to or to even show up at one of these events? It has to be more than that. Because to show up, to do X, Y, and Z is a matter of I'm misrepresenting the king of the universe. And that should matter a heck of a lot more than your self-respect. It must. It has to. Because otherwise, all you do is become a very morally good person. There is wisdom, right? It is, I'm an image bearer of God. I am his representative. And I don't want to misrepresent him. Not, well, if I go to the party, maybe something bad happens. Right? I hear this story. Girl, Friday night, partying at the Oasis. Passing around a whole bunch of stuff. Stops breathing. Roommate has to start doing CPR. They rush her to the ER. Right? Living on the edge of a knife blade in those moments. Why? Because if I go to the party, I might OD like the girl? No. Because I don't want to misrepresent the king. Because that, that matters much more than any degree of self-respect and dignity. You have to think that. Otherwise, you just have a secular story here. And those moments are scary. Scary to say no when people pressure us to do things which clearly would be a misrepresentation of the king. It's scary in those moments. You think it's scary for Vashti? Yes, I think it's scary for her to not bake the cake, to not use the pronoun, to not go in or put myself in this type of compromising position. They might not like me. That friendship might end. That friendship may need to end. You cannot please both God and man. You have to at some point pick a side, Christian. You can't just be Switzerland, like ride the finch. You can't. See, as Christians, we have a different set of values. We are elect exiles. We are traveling through this world. It's not our home. And when you keep saying that to yourself, you begin to, right, I think, begin to think biblically as a representative of the king should think. It's not my home. I'm passing through. And so we have his pride, we have his values, and we have it contrasted with her courage, no doubt. Amazing courage. And we see his foolishness, right? I said, he has to respond. She has defied him openly, made him look like a fool. It's his own fault. But she's done that nonetheless. Why? Because he is a fool. That he would ask her to do that, right? That he would ask her to do that, or to go that far. And I hear guys and girls come to me all the time and say, well, they were pressuring me, right? Who? My boyfriend, my girlfriend, this guy who's not my boyfriend, my girlfriend. They were pressuring me, right? Do X, Y, and Z. And then oftentimes it ruins perfectly good 
friendships. I, I think, and not to give too much away into chapter 2, but I think Ahasuerus is going to be kicking himself because he knows he has to respond. But the only reason he has to respond is because of his foolishness in the first place to demand something of Vashti that he never should have demanded. And he ruined, essentially, this relationship. He didn't guard the relationship well at all. He's a fool for it. So we see his foolishness. We see his pride. We see her courage. And bottom line, we see the sovereignty of God. Who is the authority? The authority in 483 B.C. is the same authority in this world in 2019. He is not mentioned here in this story, and he's often not mentioned at all by people who don't know him. It doesn't matter whether they know him. It doesn't matter whether they acknowledge him. He is still the king. He's still calling the shots, even if they don't believe in him. It doesn't change the reality. And I am thankful that is our God. So as the team comes, I want to pray for us. God, we thank you that despite the fact you're not mentioned in this story, you are very much in this story. Sovereignly orchestrating, lining up all the events for ultimately your glory and the provision of your people. And Lord, as your people... Here today, we praise you. And we, Lord, I think can take so much comfort for knowing these things, these truths, that all authority belongs to you. Satan might be out there causing havoc, and there's sinful men as well, Lord, but ultimately, even Satan is on a very short leash. And we thank you, God, that you are in control. I pray, Lord, that we might find our treasure in you. Lord, that you would protect us from our Xerxes-like tendency, Lord, to value what the world loves. And not that we can't enjoy those things, Lord, but I pray that we would live with those such things when you so choose to give them to us, that we might live with them in such a way that there is no doubt in the minds of our friends, our family, our co-workers, that ultimately, beyond our relationships, houses, toys, money, that you are our ultimate, all-satisfying treasure, Lord. We love you, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen.